Hello, my name is Chris Oliver and I'm Chief Executive at Lancashire and South Cumbria Foundation Trust. And welcome back to the third podcast in our series of In Conversation with a CEO, which hopefully will provide listeners with an insight into the services provided by the Trust. It's great today to be joined by Becky, who is our consultant clinical psychologist. And today we're going to be talking about borderline personality disorder. So hi, Becky, it's great to be joined with you today. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So as I've mentioned, we're going to talk about borderline personality disorder, which I know is something that you're really passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also really timely this month because it's dedicated to raising awareness of the condition. It is, yes. Uh, May's Borderline Personality Disorder Awareness Month, both nationally and internationally as well. And I feel really passionate. I'm so pleased that the Trust is kind of recognising that in a podcast today. So thank you for the opportunity. No problem at all. Well, let's get started. You know, what is personality disorder? Mm. So I'll tell you a bit about myself. So I'm um, a consultant clinical psychologist. Um, my roles um, within uh, the personality disorder managed clinical network, a snappy title, or otherwise known as PDMCN. Um, and uh, I'm also the kind of clinical lead of that service and work within that. So we're based um, often with the adult services and CMHTs. Um, and a lot of our work is about sort of bringing awareness and treatment to this client group, which we feel really sort of passionate about and really pleased with the work that goes on. I can't wait to tell you all about it. Um, I first came to the trust actually in 2007 uh, as a trainee clinical psychologist. So I've been with this trust for about 16 years or so now in various different guises. I started off in the forensic services, working at Guild Lodge. I've worked in home treatment teams and then worked my way through to the um, PDMCM personal disorder clinical network and part of that was really um, my passion about wanting to work with people who have really complex really distressing difficulties and um, an opportunity to really make a difference to that client group and so it's really um, been my passion for the last kind of 10 years or so working in that team um, and it's such there's such great work going on in the trust. That's fantastic to hear Becky and can you tell us a bit more about what borderline personality disorder is? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think often it's helpful to, to just think about what is personality first. So personality is um, a kind of the way that we think, the way we feel, the way we interact with the world. And we, obviously we all have that. It's kind of who we are. And for people who might attract a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, um, the same things apply. However, they might have difficulties in those different areas. So difficulties with the way that they think and, and get set, stuck in certain ways of thinking in the way that they feel their emotions, so they find them really difficult to manage and experience them um, very much, very intensely and much more than, than we might do. Um, and also in their relationships and how they interact with other people, it causes them um, great difficulties and, and great distress in terms of that. So those are kind of some of the areas of difficulty. So it's emotions, relationships, thoughts, and, and often a much more impulse uh, uh, propensity to be impulsive. Okay. Um, and and people can feel that from kind of a, a mild, so it might be a mild difficulty in certain areas all the way up on a spectrum really to the more sort of um, significant or severe difficulties. Um, and really it's just a collection um, of symptoms, a collection of difficulties, which which is kind of given a diagnostic label. So some of those things are um, fear of abandonment, um, self-harming or suicidal behaviour. Um, it might be sort of chronic feelings of emptiness, impulsivity, explosive anger. So some really difficult um, collection of experiences, which is kind of given that label or diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Uh, I think just for the listeners, it's really important to note as well that um, often within the trust and, and nationwide, 
Um, it is given different names as well. Okay. So there's emotionally unstable personality disorder. That's the ICD version of the difficulties. And more recently, um, especially within a lot of the NHS long-term plan um, paperwork and in, in the trust in general and the personality disorder um, staff in general, it's, it's often thought of as a complex emotional and relational needs. So if, if you hear any of those terms, they all kind of are describing the same sort of thing in terms of those difficulties in those kind of key areas um, for people. That's great to hear. Thank you. And I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that over the years, there must have been many misconceptions or mm -hmm. stereotypes about borderline personality disorder. Yeah. yeah. Can you just talk through about, I suppose, how, how we've changed and, and, and how the services have changed over that time? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you're quite right, Chris. Is a, it's uh, in some in some ways for the services and for service users, it can be quite a controversial um, diagnosis or uh, label to sort of have attached to them. So, for some people that I've worked with, they find it kind of helpful and validating. You know, like oh, now I know what it is that I'm experiencing. It isn't just a me thing. This is a a real kind of um, difficulty that people have, and now as a treatment pathway. However, for other people, it can be. Um, they can see it as particularly unhelpful and, and potentially result in, in further stigmatisation. So th there is a lot of controversy around about it. Um, and often for, for staff members working in LSCFT, um, people who attract this diagnosis might present with quite scary behaviours in terms of sort of self-harming or wanting to end their lives. And that in us um, makes our anxiety rise. And often then we only see the tip of the iceberg, potentially what the person is presenting with rather than the full story. And that's not an LSCFT problem. That's a, you know, an everywhere kind of problem. Um, so some of the, the misconceptions that people might have is that um, service users who might attract this diagnosis may be being manipulative or attention seeking or it's just behavior, et cetera. So there can be a lot of different um, and maybe on the more negative side ways of describing it. Um, and so what I'm really pleased about this, this podcast really, and the kind of work that LSCFT are doing in terms of raising awareness is this is a real passion of mine to help people understand and know a little bit more because th this isn't, um, you know, them having a particular negative view of the world. This is, you know, taking things on face value as we all do quite often. But I think what's really important for people to think about is to um, take a step back and see the whole of the iceberg. What is it that's going on below the surface and the reasons why somebody might be um, acting in a certain way? Um, and, and rather than attention-seeking, potentially what people are doing is connection-seeking. You know, rather than manipulating what they're doing is they're unable to understand what's going on in someone else's mind due to the experiences and difficulties they've had. So they're acting in a way to try and get their needs met. It's basically they have maybe a, a smaller toolkit than other people do. Okay. And they use what they... Uh, they have at their disposal, I suppose, to try and get their needs met. And that can result in a lot of very tricky, you know, challenging situations and scary behaviours for people. But ultimately what they're experiencing is kind of unbearable emotional pain often yeah. and using what they've got to kind of manage that. I like the, um, I think it's called an analogy. Um, I like the analogy of, you know, you might... Um, I don't know if you... Are you green-fingered, Chris? Are you, you like green? I am. Are you I right? do. Yeah, so, you know, if you planted a flower... Yeah. Um, and it didn't flourish in the way that you might wanted it to. Yeah. There would be multiple different reasons why we might think that would happen. It could be the wrong soil. You know, I might not have watered it enough. It maybe needed some plant food. There could have been an infestation of slugs, you know, et cetera. There could have been multiple different reasons. And I like to invite people to think about borderline personality disorder a little bit like that in terms of 
we wouldn't blame the flower and say the flower isn't working hard enough or it's doing it on purpose. Really, we need to look at what are the factors, what are the influences that are preventing this person from flourishing and having a life worth living, really. That's really good. Really mm. insightful. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks, Becky. And Becky, is there a cause of borderline personality disorder or is it multifactorial sometimes? Yeah, absolutely multifactorial. So there's no one cause, as, as is often the case with, with many mental health problems. But what the kind of research and information that's out there suggests is that it's a combination of, of, of two main things, really. So the first being somebody might be born with a more of a genetic biological predisposition to okay. certain ways of being. So I'm sure you'll know yourself, you know, when you meet two babies, no two babies are the same. There's different temperamental differences. Some might, some might be a little bit more cautious or this might be more impulsive and, you know, jump off the wall that someone else would never dream of doing, etc. So there may be a kind of um, a, a predisposition potentially for more sort of um, impulsive type behaviours. Um, and and that, that in combination with the kind of environmental experiences. So we're talking about um, real kind of chronic invalidation of someone's emotional experiences. Um, it coupled with um, often trauma, abuse, stresses, multiple distresses. And for people to usually attract this diagnosis, that usually has to have happened in multiple different parts of their life, in multiple relationships. So ultimately, these people are, um, have been through a lot of trauma quite often. And that in combination throughout their kind of childhood adversity and throughout their lives um, kind of causes the sorts of difficulties that we might describe. So I, one thing I like to think about is, as a child, we're completely vulnerable and reliant upon everyone around us to kind of look after us and keep us safe. So if you imagine a child scared, you know, something's frightened them in a kind of a, a helpful, um, healthy emotional environment. They might go to a caregiver and they'll be like, oh, gosh, are you OK? You know, um, do you need support? Yeah, that is scary. You know, if they feel heard and they feel understood uh, and that helps someone call what we call mentalize. They, they feel that someone else has got a picture of them in their mind. And then another child who has the same experience but has either no one to go to, so feels very on their own with that, or when they express that might be met with kind of negative reaction or further trauma or further further fear. People or children have to deal with that in the best way that they know how, and often that is quite internalised. Yeah. So that's how they kind of end up finding the best way they can manage, um, which is often can be sadly unhelpful ways. So I think, um, in essence, we're kind of all susceptible. Okay. Um, and if we've we've not developed difficulties associated with this diagnosis, then we're we're lucky, and okay. we've likely had some good attachments in our lives. Brilliant. Thank you. Really well explained. And and how many people would be living with this condition? Yeah. So there's there's wide variety if you look at the okay. research. However, the kind of more recent stuff suggests that it's approximately one point six of the general population. Um, rising up to 20% plus if you go into an inpatient setting. Um, so I, I looked up the population of Lancashire and South Cumbria, yeah. and I believe there's about 1.8 million. It is, yeah. So in, in our region, in Lancashire and South Cumbria, you're looking at a conservative and a very conservative estimate of about 30,000 people that might live with this diagnosis. And now obviously they're not all going to kind of come in contact with our services um, as they'll be experiencing it in different levels from mild to severe. And some may have, you know, really good support mechanisms in place, et cetera. Um, but it's certainly something that affects a large proportion of our, our service users. And and taking that on board, Becky, what I suppose what can we do as a as a as an organization to support people with personality uh, borderline personality disorder? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So um, there's loads of things that we can do, really. And I, what the message I really want to get out to the listeners is that um, there is lots you can do. The, please be hopeful and recovery is possible. Uh, and I think often that can that can feel quite far away, you know, for people, but it absolutely is. I've seen it happen um, and it's fabulous when it does. Um, so you can help and you can make a difference. And I think some of the more general ways that we can help is, you know, the iceberg I was talking about yeah. earlier. So really taking that step back rather than being absorbed by what is the behavior that I'm seeing. It's not what what are you what's wrong with you. It's more like what's happened to you to kind of cause it. What's the function? What's going on behind it? Um, take time to listen and really try and understand. So often we might um, feel so anxious by what a person's presenting with. We don't um, we don't we don't do that or we're in a really busy, fast place environment where that's really difficult. Um, but really listening and trying to understand. And my key top tip would be validation. Okay. Um, so find when speaking with someone who might be distressed in this way or might attract this kind of diagnosis, find the valid parts of what they're describing um, and, and validate that um, as much as you possibly can. So, for example, I might not validate that somebody wants to end their life because obviously that would be a, a tragedy that, that we would absolutely not want to happen. But what I can validate is that distress that you're feeling and the reasons why you feel that distress. And what that is doing is creating that kind of connection of some sort of level of attachment that you see me, you hear me, you understand yeah. what I'm going through. And that in itself can actually be soothing for people because often what people want to do is solve the problem straight. We're problem solvers as human beings, aren't we? We want to get Absolutely. something solved and I want to help this person to say the right specific golden nugget word. Yeah. Um, and often that isn't the case. And that's really difficult for us, especially as caring staff, um, to, to come to terms with often yeah. because we want to make something better for someone straight away. That's why we come into the job. Um, but, yeah, my, my, my kind of key message would be really to just sit sit with and understand and, and try and really experience what that person's going through. Drop any kind of offensive stance that we, we all have from time to time. Um, and if you're able to, be really consistent and reliable. Um, because what we know is that if you, you know, so often we advocate for kind of appointments, same time, same place each week so that we're offering a kind of a scaffolding really. So okay. these people um, who might present with these di uh, diagnoses or these difficulties um, often have no kind of, of sense of consistency and, fit and don't trust people, don't feel like they're going to stick to what they're saying, understand it because of what they've been through. Been through yeah. So if we can be as consistent and reliable as we possibly can, that can really help to scaffold them and build a level of trust um between us um and i guess what another kind of top tip which is um try to avoid kind of generalized statements that might be experienced as dismissive so okay. an example which is a very british thing you know we all love it is you know make yourself a cup of tea or you know go and have a minute go and have a bath those sorts of things which are meant with a really you know really wonderful intention of trying to help somebody soothe but often what that can do is if we've not done the hearing and the listening and the validating and the understanding part it can be experienced as dismissive. You know, okay. you're not listening. I don't want a cup of tea right now. Yeah. What I'm trying to tell you is that I feel so unbearably distressed that I can't cope. Um, so what? And also, often the good bit of the cup of tea is that someone makes it for you, and it's kind of a caring gesture. It's an attachment thing. Yeah. So I'd say try and hold back from making those, unless you know the person really, really well, and okay. you know that's a helpful thing. And just try and think, scaffold them, think through. You know, if you were in that situation, what would you do? You know, it's ultimately they're people that are experiencing ultimately horrendous distress 
Um, and if we're able to just sit and be with them, that can be so, so helpful. And I suppose the other option, if someone's in the right kind of place, right time, um, you know, considering with the many, some of, some of the nice guidelines, recommended treatments can be, can be a helpful uh, can be a helpful thing. It's not for everyone at that particular time potentially, but for some people it can be um, it can be a really helpful thing as well. Perfect. And it was really important there, Becky, when you talked about recovery and that hope. That's yeah, really absolutely. important, isn't it? Absolutely. If we can if we can hold on to that when the service yeah. user can't, and uh, or in that moment they can't, yeah. I think that's really important because um, often they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, um, and we have to hold that for them as much as we possibly can yeah brilliant so could you just talk to me a bit about our own borderline personality disorder service and and Mm -hmm. what we provide as as an organization yeah absolutely so um clients who uh, might attract this diagnosis will hit multiple parts of our services so you know um a and e urgent care pathways um acute therapy service ats um cmht so CMHTs would be community mental community health. Community mental teams. health teams, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we love our um, oh, acronyms, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so they'll hit multiple parts. So good work and helpful work can be done in all of those different areas. They really can. However, the the NICE guidelines and not the evidence base suggest that longer-term psychological work is the most helpful for this client group, which which makes sense given that often their difficulties and their experiences from the past have been over such a long period of time that this isn't something that's solved, you know, overnight yeah. potentially. So um, for from us in the personality sort of managed clinical network, which is kind of based alongside um, the community mental health teams, um, we have um, various different um, NICE guidelines uh, therapies available. So we've got something called um, structured clinical management, which is a two-year um, treatment where people can see a worker once a week at the same time same place um, and then once they've kind of got into that they can join a group as well um and that sort of lasts for two years and it's based basically based on problem solving okay helping somebody learn new coping skills helping them solve the problems in the moment helping them bring down their distress when they're up here um and, and feeling like they can't cope um and that is available with it within general cmhts and with ourselves in the personality disorder network there's um, something called dialectical behaviour therapy, which um, we have four different consults, one set up in each of the um, networks in LSCFT. And that is, a, again, an 18-month therapy, which is very much focused on working on self-harming behaviour and suicidal behaviour and bringing that down. Um, and I'm, I'm a part of that, and I'm a real big advocate for this intervention. I think it's fabulous if people are at the right place when they get it. Um, and we've seen some great results of people going from really quite significant self-harm into um, to being working, you know, um, living a great life. Yeah, I just got a message recently from someone who just got a part-time job, which she never thought would be possible in a million years, a couple of years ago. So some great stuff going on there. Uh, and we also have mentalization-based therapy, um, which is, again, an 18-month-long therapy involving group and individual therapy. Um, and that is... Um, talking about that attachment stuff I was thinking about. So helping people develop a, a picture of what some, might be going on in someone else's mind and, and, and working on that. So there's lots of kind of um, great stuff going on. There really is. Um, and there can be some useful shorter-term work done as well. If you can help people with coping skills, you know, problem-solving skills, managing emotions, getting through a crisis um, successfully, um, you know, building up their um, 
occupation, yeah. you know, social, building a life worth living. That's what we want for people, you know, building their peer support networks. All those are so valuable. Um, and if they can work alongside a kind of a, a therapy, then they can, they can really make a massive difference for people. Um, I also want to do a little shout out about the um, personal sort of best practice group. So that's a very recent group that's been kind of set up. And if, if staff are interested in, in getting involved in working with personal disorder and, and what the kind of best practices are, then we'd, we'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch with me because we're always looking for kind of advocates and people who feel passionately about this um, service user group. Fantastic. And that, that, that you just mentioned about um, wanting people that are passionate about this service mm. and, and your passion for borderline personality disorder and, and our services and our service users is just fantastic um becky so you know we are so lucky to have you working with us um, within the trust so i just want a massive thank you for simplifying what is can be i thought originally a really complex topic but you've really distilled um the various spectrum um of it Mm -hmm. and and how we how there really is recovery and hope Mm -hmm. um and that's so important so i've really enjoyed um talking to you today and i'm sure our listeners have so just a massive thank you oh thank you for having me thank you very much take care